Lord Jesus, we know that you love us. And we ask that you would open your word and teach us how to love each other in all of our relationships the way that you have loved us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I have a friend who does a lot of marriage counseling. And whenever a couple comes to him and says that they're having problems in their marriage because of irreconcilable differences, he always chuckles and says, of course you are. One of you is a man and the other is a woman. That's an irreconcilable difference. (laughs) Do you ever wonder why God set it up this way? I mean, why did he make us male and female? What made him think that that was a good idea and that it was going to work? This month we're talking about the different kinds of relationships that we have. And tonight I want to focus on marriage. Because I think in our culture the whole male-female relationship thing is often fraught with a lot of anxiety. For both married and single people. Single people often wonder, will I ever find anyone to be a life partner? And if I do, will it last? And a lot of married people experience a lot of pain and unfulfilled dreams in their marriages. And even when a marriage seems good, sometimes we wonder, will this marriage last? Because often in our culture, marriages don't. And that makes all of us, whether we're married or single, just a little bit nervous about this whole male-female relationship thing. But I don't think that God ever intended relationships to be this difficult. And I certainly don't think that God intended so many marriages to end in divorce. And I say that not to create any sense of guilt or shame. As you know, I myself am divorced. That happens in our culture. And when it does, God is always there offering forgiveness and second chances. But it is not his heart that we get divorced. And it is not his heart that we have one relational trauma after the next. God's heart is that we have healthy, godly relationships. And I think the passage we just read gives us a clue on how we can do that. And I think it applies to everyone in this room. If we're single and want to get married, I think this passage tells us what we should be looking for and how we should be looking for it. And if we're married, I think this passage tells us how to have healthy marriages. And if we don't want to get married, we probably know someone who's married. And I think this passage gives us a hint about how we can support them in their marriage. And I think for all of us, it teaches us a little bit about how we should Love not just our spouses, but our co-workers, our neighbors, our friends. So I think it applies to everyone. So let's look at the, the prototype, the first relationship, Adam and Eve. What are the characteristics of godly male-female relationships? The first is this. Godly relationships are about partnership first and passion second. You know, we are sold a bill of goods in our culture that that what romantic love is all about is sort of the some enchanted evening syndrome. You know, in every song on the radio, and every movie from Casablanca to Bridges of Madison County teaches that what we need to do is find someone who excites in us an unending, steady stream of passion and pyrotechnical sexual chemistry. The problem is, nobody's that attractive. Especially for a lifetime. What I see in this story about Adam and Eve is very different. God creates Adam and Eve to be partners for each other. The the word in the Hebrew is helpmates. They're meant to be partners, not objects of passion. God makes Eve out of Adam's rib. Not out of his head, which means she's not supposed to rule over him. 
and not out of his foot, which means she's not supposed to be subordinate to him, but out of his rib, which means that we are meant to walk side by side with our partners, helping each other to love God more, to become like Jesus. And then it's out of that partnership that feelings of passion grow. You see, it's not that passion isn't part of God's plan. It is. God doesn't want us to just have platonic marriages. It's just that in our culture, I think we make passion the whole point. And if we don't feel constantly in love with our partners, then we're tempted to think, well, gosh, maybe I got a lemon in the grab bag of life. And and so I need to find someone else. And then someone else. And then someone else. In an unending itinerary of desire. But God's plan is different. In God's plan, passion grows out of partnership and out of sharing life together. And I think there's nothing more romantic in the whole world than two people who have spent a lifetime together sitting on the front porch looking at each other and saying, we've seen it all together, haven't we? It's just that Hollywood's never going to show us that. Real love, regardless of what our culture tells us, is not a feeling, but a commitment to seek the best for the other person. And when we do that, passion grows. I had a friend who was single for years, and and he was dating this woman who was so good for him. I mean, when he was with her, his faith grew, his character developed. I mean, they had a great time together, but he hesitated to marry her, and we kept asking him, why, what's wrong? And finally he said, well, you want to know what it is? I love her and everything, but she doesn't make my heart do flip-flops every single time I see her. And we said, you need to get over that. That's dumb. So we got over it, and they got married, and they have a great marriage with lots of passion. Best friends make best lovers, but it doesn't always work the other way around. Partnership first, passion second. Second truth that emerges from this text is that in God's model of relationships, we need to appreciate each other in our similarities and in our differences. Adam and Eve are like each other. They're both human. But they're different. In in Hebrew, actually, the description for Eve is literally like him, opposite. Like him, opposite. Alike but different. We are made in God's image. But the totality of who God is cannot be expressed in just one sex. It takes two sexes to do that. We are alike but different. And I think a lot of times we don't respect each other in our differences. And we want our partners to think and act and be and do just like we do. It's like that song that Rex Harrison sings in My Fair Lady. Why why can't a woman be more like a man? What a weird song. right? Like that's the weirdest song ever in the history of songs. God wants us to complement each other, not duplicate each other. My wife and I are similar in some very key areas. We especially value the same things, faith, family, and friends. And we like the same movies, which helps. But there it ends. That's it. It's a short list. In every other way, we are very different. As I've told you before, Christina is absolutely incapable of worry. Whereas for me, it's my spiritual gift. (laughs) Christina finds a weekend at the Sheraton a little too rugged. Whereas I love camping and hiking, and the more rugged, the further back in the the mountains, the better. Christina doesn't mind stoplights. She can even see them as instruments of order and rhythm in the world. Whereas I view them as agents of Satan. (laughs) 
Here's the thing. Where we are alike, we enjoy and celebrate those things together. Where we differ, we enjoy the diversity. And where we believe that the other person needs to grow for their sake or for the sake of the marriage, we encourage that growth, but we do not demand it. And there is a huge difference between encouraging someone to become like Jesus and demanding it. Because when we demand it, we are not respecting that other person. Let me give you an example. As I just said, I worry a lot, especially about my performance on the job. And, and sometimes after a sermon, I'll, I'll obsess over something that I should have said and didn't. Or more usually, something that I said and shouldn't have. And I'll go home and I'll worry about it and I'll obsess about it and just keep stewing over it. And as I've told you before, Christina always just says the same thing to me. She says, Scott, let it go. Remember, nobody thinks about you as much as you think about you. They weren't even listening when you preached it, so don't worry about it. They didn't even hear it. They've forgotten all about it. Let it go. And she says it with a smile on her face and in a good-natured tone. What she doesn't say to me is, I can't believe I'm married to such a worrywart. And you're ruining my life, and you are not my ideal spouse, and you must change, and you must change now, so I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Let's go, buddy. Change. That's not what she says to me. What she says to me in those times is, Scott, this is not God's best for you. Let it go. In godly relationships, we appreciate each other in our similarities and our differences and help each other to become like Christ. Third truth I see in this text is that godly relationships are about mutual servanthood. Adam and Eve are called to be helpers for one another. The New Testament puts it this way. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. I could just see the look on the women's face. They're like, why did you read that on Mother's Day of all days? Hang on, it gets better. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just any old way? No, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. It's a bit of a controversial passage, but I don't think it should be. Because I don't think this passage is talking about some kind of chauvinistic model for relationships. And I certainly don't think it is suggesting that anyone should submit to an oppressive or abusive relationship. What it's talking about is mutual servanthood. It's talking about a relationship where each person seeks to submit to the other out of reverence for Christ. Where husbands and wives, and for that matter, friends and neighbors and co-workers, seek to love each other the way Jesus loves the church. Remembering that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Sometimes when I'm doing something that my wife doesn't like, I'm being selfish or unkind, she'll look at me and she'll say, Scott, would Jesus do this to the church? It's a good question, and I just offer it to you women as a Mother's Day present to use on your husbands. Would Jesus do this to the church? It's a great question. Ask yourself, would Jesus treat the church the way I'm treating my spouse, my friends, my co-workers? We are called into mutual servanthood. I have a friend who, who had a crisis point in his marriage. He and his wife were Christians and they felt called to have college students live in their home. But this was just driving his wife crazy. I mean, the students ate all their food, stayed up late at night, made a lot of noise, and she wanted them to leave, but he didn't. And they reached this impasse in their marriage, and it got so bad, he was wondering if they could even stay married. Well, one night he was sort of laying in bed, and he was depressed about all this and about how they weren't getting along, and this voice went off in his head, and it said, read the instructions. 
Well, he knew that his wife didn't come with an operations manual, so he, he picked up the Bible and he read those words that I just read about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ and husbands loving their wives the way Christ loves the church. And he realized that the call on his life was not to get his own way. The call in his life was to help his wife become everything she was meant to be in Jesus Christ. So he went to her the next day and he said, okay, I get it. At the end of the month, the students are gone. And they left. Six months later, she came back to him and she said, you know what? I kind of miss having students live with us. Can we bring them back? But this time with rules. And they have had students live with them for the last 30 years. That's what I'm talking about. Mutual servanthood. In marriages, friendships, every relationship we have, seeking to love each other as Jesus loves the church. Partnership first, respecting differences, mutual servanthood, and helping our partners become all that they were meant to be in Jesus. That's what Christ wants for our relationships. Now there's one last thing I want to say. I know that this is a painful subject for some of you. You don't have a partner, maybe, and you want one. Or you're married, but you're waiting for your spouse to become the kind of partner you have always dreamed about having, and you're wondering when's that going to happen. I just want to say this, and it sums up everything I've been talking about tonight. It is more important to be the right person than to have the right person. There's an interesting non sequitur in this story. In in verse 18, God says, It is not good for Adam to be alone, so I'll make a helper for him. But then, in the very next verse, what God makes Adam do is he makes Adam name all the animals. It seems kind of like an interruption in the story. You, You can sort of imagine Adam going, All right, I get a helper. This is great. And then God says, Name the animals. And Adam's like, Name the animals? Where's the helper, man? I mean, what does naming the animals have to do with Adam's need for a partner? Everything. Because you see, naming the animals is a way for Adam to grow. To practice leadership. To develop his character. To learn more about God. Naming the animals is God's way of developing Adam to be the right person for Eve. And then he brings Eve along. For those of you who are waiting, wondering where your perfect partner is. Or when your spouse is ever going to change so that you can have the spouse you have always wanted to have. Here's what I think you need to do. Name the animals. Do the things that God has asked you to do. Work on becoming a better friend. Everything I learned about being married, I learned through friendship. It's a transferable skill. Develop your character. Exercise your gifts in the world. If you're married, persevere through tough times. As hard as that may sound, people who have done it are always happy they did. And most of all, get to know Jesus, who is the source of this kind of love. And as we do those things, God will take care of our needs. It is more important to be the right person than to have the right person. When my wife and I first met, I had been single for way longer than I ever wanted to be. And every relationship I'd ever had had ended in disaster, including one marriage that ended in divorce. So I I went to Stanford to do graduate work because I felt that's what God wanted me to do to develop my character, the next step to help me grow. And my first day there, I was at a welcome party for English graduate students, and I was having a miserable time. I was talking with all these people. They were talking about authors I'd never read and filmmakers I'd never heard of, and it all made me feel pretty stupid. 
So I retreated to the buffet table to try to get away from it. And I, I, I was reaching for a piece of broccoli. I, I guess I figured I needed some fiber or something. And as I was reaching for this broccoli, there was Christina. And we struck up a conversation. And I noticed that she had a little, one of those little Christian fish necklaces on. She, she joked later on that she was fishing for Christian men. She was in the wrong university for that, that's for sure. And I said to her, are you a Christian? And she said, yeah, are, are you a Christian too? And I said, yeah, I'm a Christian. And she said, wow, two Christians in the Stanford English Department. There's an oxymoron. And I kind of like that dig at Stanford because I wasn't having a good time there. So I thought, that's great. And we went on from there to have a great conversation. And, and out of that, we developed a friendship. A few years later, we began to date and eventually we got married. And along the way, God used her to teach me about servant love, friendship, and respecting each other's differences. Here's my point. When I was reaching for that broccoli, in those five seconds, I did not realize that my world had just changed. I was just naming the animals. I was just doing what God had called me to do, going to school, growing in my character, learning about him, becoming the man that God wanted me to become. And as I did that, he began to work in my life and provide for my needs. It is more important to be the right person than to have the right person. A friend of mine and her husband reached a point in their marriage after years of frustration where they had decided to separate. But before they did that, she felt that what she needed to do was turn herself and her marriage over to God. And for her, that meant a lot of time in prayer. And as she spent time in prayer, she began to realize that she had been treating her husband as just one piece of the puzzle of her life and not a very important piece at that. Certainly not more important than her career. So she decided that she needed to reach out to him more. Meanwhile, her husband began to realize that in order to be the kind of man that she needed, he needed to be more like Jesus. And to do that, he needed to invest in his relationship with God. So he did that. And as they were both in the process of trying to become the right people, their marriage was healed. And today they are very glad that they stuck together even when times were tough. As we go about the business of becoming the men and women God wants us to be, it is amazing how he provides for us. How our marriages begin to grow. Or how he brings the right person into our lives. And even if those things don't happen how he surrounds us with a community of people to support us and love us because God doesn't want anyone to be lonely in his kingdom. When we begin to love each other the way Christ loves us, all of our relationships improve. And that's where Jesus just has got to enter into this picture because there is no way that we can do this without him. There is no way that we can love this way unless we have first experienced this kind of love. And the only person who's ever loved this way perfectly is Jesus. We got to have him to do this. And the good news is that everything I've been talking about tonight, about servant love, about abiding love, the good news is those aren't just prescriptions for how we should love. Those are descriptions of how we have been loved in Jesus. And the more we experience his love, the more we can love each other that way too. Whenever I do weddings, I always gently encourage the, couples, the, the couple to use the traditional vows because I just think they're so great. I take you from this day forward to have and to hold in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, forsaking all others till death do us part. 
And what's so beautiful to me about those words is that they are a pretty good paraphrase of what God says to us. Because at the cross, Jesus says to us, I take you at your best and I take you at your worst. In all your faithfulness and in all your restless faithlessness, in all your strengths and in all your weaknesses, I take you forever. You see, marriage is really just an earthly model of the radical, romancing love of God. And the more we experience that deep, deep love of Jesus, the more we live in it, the more we can give it away. Now, I know for some of you this this all may seem impossible. There is so much relational pain in your life that this sermon means nothing to you. I just want to say this. As a person who has had a very traumatic and stormy relational past, I promise you that when God enters into our relationships, when we begin to experience his love and are able to give it away, then our relationships become not only functional, but sacred places where we learn to love even as we have been loved by a holy God. That is his promise, and I know from my own painful experience that he is more than able to fulfill it. Lord Jesus, your love for us is deep, and we are grateful for that. Lord, we ask that you would help us to experience your love in a way that changes us and transforms all of our relationships, Lord, so that we can love each other the way you've loved us. Do this for us, and we'll be grateful people. In your name, Jesus. Amen.